What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic place, please consider us as a primary resource to get that question answered. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Yemen, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Uh, Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One. Love to answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number is 833-288-EWTN. Lines are open right now. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm well. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Here's a a question from a very patient listener who sent this to us a couple days ago on YouTube. It's Chris in New Jersey. Chris says, how do I explain the existence of God to my son who identifies as a cultural Catholic? He does not believe in God. He's been a church-going atheist since childhood. Again, that's from Chris in New Jersey on YouTube. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So many of the people who describe themselves as atheists today, including church-going atheists, do so in response to a very anthropomorphic view of God, um, you know, in which, you know, God might function something like the celestial slot machine where you can insert your prayer and pull the lever and if you're lucky you know you 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 win the jackpot and getting back what you asked for and uh that kind of image of the divinity um doesn't square well with personal experience and of course it also runs into all kinds of problems the other problems not the least of which is the problem of evil and all you know the difficulties with that and so it's really important that when someone says they don't believe in God, that they define the God in whom they don't believe, to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Uh, because in the Catholic tradition, the doctrine of God in himself is really quite subtle and elevated and has very little in common with the, with the anthropomorphic God of popular imagination. And in fact, one of the... Uh, premier Catholic mystical writers in the tradition, and one that really is sort of the seedbed for the rest of Catholic mysticism is Dionysius the Areopagite, or pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, whose conception of God is that God is so far removed from um, uh, from being, from our contingent created being, that, you know, without an awful lot of qualification to just make a blanket statement like God exists is to misstate the nature of God, that, that what we think of as existence and being 
is something so limited and finite that it can't really be predicated of God in in, in univocal terms, right? Mm. And so, you know, there is there is something that it is to be God, but that's just vastly different than than anything that our puny minds can comprehend or conceptualize, so that would fall normally under the categories of being and not being, right? Um, and uh, and in fact, uh, so remote and and uh, and distant is the nature of God from our experience that the best we can do, the most accurate approach, the most edifying approach, the most spiritualizing approach to God is the way of negation, which is to affirm all those things that God isn't rather than to affirm those things that mm, God is. Yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, when I'm talking to atheists, if they're materialists, one of the things I like to put in their hands is the book Mind and Cosmos by the atheist writer Thomas Nagel who did not believe in God, but also did not believe in materialism. Um, and I like to do that because it opens their mind to the possibility that, okay, there's, there's more to reality than I can grasp in the material world, right? There's something beyond the material, even if it doesn't correspond to my traditional idea of the Abrahamic God. Uh, another great book is by David Bentley Hart. It's called The Experience of God. And it's a, it's a work of philosophical definition. What is it that we mean precisely when we when we use the term God? So mm-hmm. that that's the take that's the route that I would take, right? Is uh, say, okay, it's possible that I could agree with every affirmation you make, my atheist son, and and you may just be denying something that Catholics don't consider to be God. Ah, very good, Chris. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Peter in Minnesota. Dr. Anders, how would you respond to an Eastern Orthodox argument against doctrinal development? Also, did you ever consider the Orthodox faith? Yeah, I appreciate the question, and the the argument that I would give, I think, is Newman's argument. Newman, who is really the thinker to whom we credit the idea of doctrinal development, uh-huh. remarked that, you know, that that Christian theology has a history, Christian doctrine has a history— and that the way things are expressed in one century is not identical to the way it was expressed in earlier centuries, and that there are refinements and entailments and subtle shades of meaning and nuance, and uh, and even whole concepts that emerge at a point in time that seem not to have been present to people in earlier centuries that are later affirmed to be dogmatic claims and binding upon the consciences of Catholics. And that's as true of the East as it is of the West. And, uh, you know, I'll... Um, you know, I'll give you an example. One of the earliest controversies in, in Christian theology concerned what was called the doctrine of the second repentance. And it was over the question, if you sin after baptism, uh, what options are there for you? And a very widespread opinion in the East and West was that you get one shot after baptism. Ooh. And after that, you're toast, and you're kicked out of the church. And the reason that was a lively position is that there are passages of sacred scripture that seem to suggest that. That suggest that if you sin post Hebrews chapter 6, you know, um, if you sin after baptism, you're toast. And uh, and so there are a lot of people that held that. And you find that in the Shepherd of Hamas. You'll find that in Clement of Alexandria. And uh, the church actually had to decide that question and put something on the map that became dogmatic teaching, which is that the doctrine of the second principle is false. And in fact, you can sin and repent and sin and repent and the sin and repent. There's no limit to the number of times you can do that post-baptismally. But that wasn't clear in the text of the New Testament. It had to be explicated through historical circumstances. That's a development. 
It's called a communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. We have three lines open, 833-288-3986. Before the break, uh, David was tackling this question from Peter in Minnesota. How would you respond to an Eastern Orthodox argument against doctrinal development, which he answered adroitly? Uh, His other question, though, that we didn't have time for, did, did you, David, ever consider the Orthodox faith? Yeah, for about five minutes. That long? Yeah, for about five minutes. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, I, w- I was attracted to the idea of, of uh, something other than Protestantism and something that had the roots of tradition about it and so uh-huh. forth. And, and, of course, there's more than one claimant to that title, the Catholic Church being one, the Orthodox Church being another. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but a few things deterred me. One was if it comes to the question of the of the Eastern theological and spiritual patrimony, I am not denied that by being a Roman Rite Catholic. And and the Catholic Church conceives of itself as breathing with two lungs, East and West, and that doesn't mean Orthodox and Catholic, it means Eastern and Western. Right. Right. And so, you know, the Greek, the Syriac, uh, uh, you know, the, um, the Coptic traditions, these are also Catholic traditions. They are available to me, right? And so... The choice to actually join an Orthodox congregation isn't for me primarily about theology or spirituality, but it's about jurisdiction. Mm. You know, it's a it's a legal question about you know to whose authority will I answer, and you know there's an inherent instability in the or in my judgment in the Orthodox uh, ecclesiology. Um, you know, first their their notion of autocephaly seems to be just a talk about historical development. That was the first part of the question. That that just strikes me patently obvious to have been in historical development, and not something that we can find in the data of Revelation as such. Um, but even worse, you know, how do you define? How do you even actually locate an Orthodox Church and understand it to be Orthodox? That is to hold the right faith. And you know, they typically define that around the teaching of the ecumenical councils, which poses the question: Which are they? which are the ecumenical councils, because, of course, there are different ancient Christian bodies with apostolic succession who, just like, you know, there are different canons of the Bible, there are different canonical lists of ecumenical councils. Yeah. And there's just no way out of that dilemma. I mean, you can you can arbitrarily assert, well, the imperial church, the one that had, you know, the, the gold and the guns and could enforce its will, just arbitrarily assert, well, you know, they've got the most people, they have the most, you know, real estate. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they're the one I'm going to go with. But that's just arbitrary. Yeah. Um, and uh, and of course, you know, the the cops would tell you that their tradition is more ancient. And so it, I, I don't think I think the whole thing kind of falls apart. And then I had a really pragmatic concern, and this isn't theologically motivated, and that is that I live in the West. Yes, you do. You know, so e- even if I granted Orthodox ecclesiology, my the, the Latin patriarch would happen to be the Bishop of Rome. So I just didn't see any upside you know, to, okay. to becoming Orthodox, even though I have a profound appreciation for the Eastern spiritual patrimony, which I, of, you know, to which I frequently avail myself. Peter, thanks so much uh, for your question from Minnesota. Glad you're listening to Call to Communion. You know, a lot of people listen to Call to Communion and all of our great programming on the EWTN app, which is an absolutely free download. You can enjoy EWTN live TV and radio streams like this show, audio and video on demand, EWTN news, program schedules, prayers, devotionals. It is all there and it's absolutely free. Download the EWTN app today by going to EWTNapps.com. You'll find it for your iOS, your Apple, iPhone. You'll also find it for Android. Check it out, EWTNapps.com. 
Com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with uh, Thad, a first-time caller in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. And a blessed uh, ad- Advent, uh, a blessed Lent to you, Thad. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I had a question um, about the first reading from Daily Mass yesterday um, from the book of Jonah with the Ninevites. Uh-huh. And how the, he, God was going to destroy the city, and then they repented. Um, my question is, at the end, it says, When God saw by their actions how they turned from their evil way, he repented of the evil that he had threatened to do to them. He did not carry it out. Uh, my question is, I didn't know that God should, would, or could repent, and then that he's capable of evil. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic doctrine is that God is absolutely immutable and that there is no hint or or shadow of change in him whatsoever at all. And that would include a change of mind, a change of emotional state, Mm -hmm. you know, a change of circumstance, a change of position, you name it, God doesn't change. And um, uh, I am the Lord, says the Lord, and I change not, Malachi 3, verse 6. And that's the Catholic dogma. And so you have to ask yourself the question, well, then what then do you do with these passages of Scripture that say that God changes, since others say that he doesn't, and Catholic dogma clearly teaches that he does not. And what we do as Catholics is we understand this language to be figurative, to be a kind of condescension to the human phenomenal point of view, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and not to be taken as literal statements about the metaphysics of divine transcendence. And there it is. Appreciate that. Uh, Thad, thank you so much for your call today from Lincoln. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. As a matter of fact, three lines are open at 833-288-3986. Here is uh, Carol in Henderson, Nevada, listening on uh, Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Carol. Blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Well, I guess I have another question about all the readings of the readings of the Mass today about the chair of St. Peter. And it got me to thinking because uh, I have so many Protestant friends, and they all have just such an animus against the authority of the Pope. And I, I just wonder where this originated from because, uh, I mean, he doesn't have any authority over them. Why would they care? Like, where did this originate sure. from? Sure. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate it. So um, it's surprising, actually, where this animus against the Pope came from. It's surprising because it came from Catholic sources. Really? Yes. It didn't originally arise in Protestantism. It's older than that. Um, there was a, um, uh, in the Franciscan movement early on, as you know, Francis was dedicated to a kind of radical poverty. And uh, after Francis died, his movement split over the question of poverty. And there were those that basically took a more moderate line on poverty, and then there were radicals that held that the Franciscan order as such could own nothing, and moreover advocated radical poverty as the way of salvation for all Christians. So sort of wanted to turn every man into Francis himself. Mm. And they were opposed by the church. The radical view was opposed by the church and the pope. And... um, uh, and they were so ideologically committed to radical poverty that they decided that if the Pope was opposed to them, that he was opposed to God, and the Pope must be the Antichrist. Oh, boy. And so the doctrine that the Pope was the Antichrist actually arose from a 
a Catholic sect, namely the Radical Franciscans. Wow. And uh, then that idea was very popular. Anti-clericalism, not just anti-papalism, but resentment against the clergy, was an extremely widespread and, and very well-documented uh, popular attitude. I mm. mean, it'd be kind of like equivalent to how many Americans are fond of the IRS, <laughs> you know? Or like when you see these surveys, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. When you survey, you know, what's the direction of the country? And are you satisfied with, you know, Congress's job description or job performance? Like, overwhelmingly, most of the country will say the country's going the wrong way and of we course. can't stand Congress. You sure. know, that, that's just typical. Well, if you'd asked your typical late medieval Catholic, you know, what do you think of the state of the clergy? They would have said, ah, but it's terrible. It's awful. We can't stand the clergy. They're <laughs> rotten. And they were, they were Catholics, but that was that kind of thing would happen. And, yeah. and you, it, you see them parodied and literature and that kind of stuff. So when the reformers came along in the 16th century and they offered you know, a, a deeply theoretical attack on the office of the Pope and the clergy, mm-hmm. they were speaking to a very receptive audience, uh, right? Yeah. But they, they made rejection of the papacy central to Protestant identity and central to the Protestant polemic against Catholicism. And they advanced, they fomented and advanced, aided and abetted this radical Franciscan claim that the Pope was, in fact, the Antichrist. And so there were there are Protestant denominations that have in their founding documents the claim that the Pope is the Antichrist. So, you know, to be a Protestant is, you know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ is only Son, and oh, by the way, the Pope's the Antichrist. And they wow. throw that in there as a kind of an article of faith. And I grew up in a Presbyterian community that, that um, you know, was pretty darn close to thinking that the Pope was the Antichrist. And uh, it's just baked into you. So, you know, I remember when I was in seminary as a Protestant, we'd be discussing, you know, meaning of a text or a theological issue, and there's always a range of options available to you and what, what point of view you're going to take. And, you know, some of them would tend, say, more traditional and high church and some more, you know, sort of low church and evangelical. And there was a point beyond which, if you if you went too far in the direction of the Catholic view of things, uh-huh. you would be, your position would be ruled out on the grounds that, well, you can't go there theologically because that leads to Rome. Mm. Like, just the very fact that a position would be Catholic would be enough reason to reject it. You know, like, like, stop right there, buddy. You, you, yeah, you, 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 Anders, you're getting dangerously close to Rome. You better <laughs> shut up on that point, you know. Wow. Well, there you go. And, uh, Carol, thank you so much for your call today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Here is a question now from uh, Scott watching us on YouTube. Dr. Anders, what is the validity of the letter of Pilate to Caesar, specifically on how he describes Jesus being with golden hair and beard. Yeah, so um, this is apocryphal literature. It's uh, not, you shouldn't put any stock into it whatsoever at all. It's uh, you know it's of historical interest only, uh-huh. um, but it's no no it, um, historical in the sense that it's interesting to find out what apocalyptic thinkers, I mean apocryphal thinkers, were were writing and saying and doing yeah. in the centuries after the ascension. But it's not accurate in terms of what it describes about Jesus or Pilate. Um, now, with respect to Jesus being golden-haired, um, that just seems tremendously unlikely given his his uh, his ethnic patrimony. It just seems tremendously unlikely. Sure. Um, we don't have a physical description of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, we have a prophetic description of his physical appearance in the book of Isaiah, and it's the place where he says he had no beauty or majesty by which we would be attracted. Mm. So the suggestion being that Jesus was physically an unattractive man. Okay. 
That's where we're going to leave it. Appreciate that. Thanks for your, for your question here. Uh, Lulu sent this one via YouTube today. Lulu says, I have heard some say that God the Father became incarnate. Where do people get this idea? Uh, so there is an ancient Christian heresy called Sabellianism, also called modalism, that suggests that there is one God um, who does not exist in three persons, but who manifests himself in three different forms. And um, uh, you will sometimes hear people uh, come forth with modalistic analogies for the Trinity, not realizing they're committing an ancient Christian heresy. So if you've mm. ever heard, for example, somebody says, well, you know, the Trinity is like, is like water, ice, and steam. Well, no, it's nothing like water, ice, and steam. <laughs> nothing whatsoever at all. But modalism is like water, ice, and steam, oh. right? And there are a lot of objections to modalism, but one of them was if you are a modalist, you necessarily draw the conclusion of patropassionism. Wow. Patropassionism would be the doctrine that the Father died on the cross. Hmm. You see? Because if the Father and the Son are the same person, just with, you know, with different uniforms mm -hmm. on, which is mm -hmm. what modalism asserts, then that leads to the conclusion that the Father suffered and died. And so, historically, that's where the idea comes from. Why anyone contemporary would say that the Father became incarnate, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. There, there are actually some modalists running around in modern Pentecostalism, but that's the only tradition I know that currently maintains modalism. Got it. Lulu, thanks so much uh, for your question today. Uh, we'll go to the phones in a moment here at 833-288-EWTN. Uh, Marcella offers this question on YouTube. I understand that Mary had a vow of chastity or was a consecrated virgin, but then when she married St. Joseph and gave birth to Jesus, wasn't this considered breaking her vows? Appreciate the question. Would not be breaking her vows because she did not violate her virginity. So Mary and St. Joseph had what's called a Josephite marriage, meaning they never consummated their marriage. Okay. Well, there that is. All right, and uh, we appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much for your question, Marcella. Here's one now from uh, Hank. I was reading a letter of St. Francis Xavier. He was discussing the sadness of his new Japanese catechumens that their deceased relatives were in hell because they hadn't heard of Christianity. He seemed to believe this, too. I feel like Catholics today have to loophole infallible statements on, quote, no salvation outside the church, like those from the Council of Florence and Boniface VIII, ignoring the medieval and early modern consensus of the faithful. Is this evidence against the continuity of Catholicism? Nope. Nope. Not if you believe in the Holy Spirit's guidance of the church and the reality of doctrinal development. No. So uh, the way doctrine develops, and this is pertinent to the question we had at the beginning of the show, uh -huh. is that, you know, there'll be two things that are true about the Catholic faith, and it isn't immediately apparent at the time when those antinomies are proposed how they are to be reconciled. And so typically the easiest way to reconcile a contradiction is to deny one of the antipodes, right? You just, you know, uh, you just deny one of them. Right? Uh -huh. but, but if they're both true— then you have to do what Thomas says and draw a distinction. Draw a distinction. And, and so what we see in the history of the tradition on this is that sacred scripture clearly describes people who are not members of the covenant people of God being saved. Mm -hmm. That's very obvious in scripture that that happens. Um, you also have the necessity of the church for salvation. And so, yeah, there have been periods of Catholic history where 
one or the other sides of that antinomy were emphasized. So, say, in the second century, among the apologists, the view was that anybody who has the divine logos, the reasonableness of God, is a Christian in an extended sense. But then that gave way to a kind of sort of much more exclusive view, uh, and modern Catholicism has reverted to, I think, the second century view, which is a more generous way of accounting for the necessity of the Church with respect to human salvation. Hank, thanks for your question. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. A couple of lines open for you at 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Right now, let's go to Christine, a first-time caller in Humphrey, Nebraska, listening on her Alexa device. And a blessed Lent to you, Christine. What's on your mind today? Thank you very much, and I wish the same for you as well. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. I uh, have, you know, been reading the Bible a little bit more and being more devoted to it, and um, I'm just wondering, when did it change that a priest could not marry? Right now I'm in Leviticus chapter 21, uh, verse 7. A priest shall not marry a woman who has been a prostitute or has lost her honor, nor a woman who has been divorced by her husband, for the priest is sacred to his God. There's other verses I'm sure you know, but when did it change and why? Sure, sure, thank you. So if there were still Levitical priests, which there are not, um, then the rules governing the marriage of Levitical priests would still be enforced. And the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that you're reading about, is not the same as the Christian priesthood. Jesus Christ was a priest, is a priest, but he was not descended from the tribe of Levi, a point that the book of Hebrews makes explicitly. Um, the, the Old Testament, Psalm 110, and the book of Hebrews argue instead that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Levi. And the Christian priesthood derives from the person of the celibate Jesus, not the married Levi. Now, uh, you might not know that there are married Catholic priests. In the Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church, there are many in the Latin rite of the Catholic Church, there are a few, but there are married Catholic priests. However, there is a strong preference for a celibate priesthood for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is Jesus' own celibate priesthood, who is the model of all priests. And the purpose of Jesus' celibate priesthood, the reason that he was a priest, the reason that he was celibate, is he said himself that I have come not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, that Christ's whole life was consecrated to the will of God and to the salvation of the people of God. And that virginal consecration is the, the most perfect form of sanctity. It's not the only form of sanctity, and it might not be the perfect form for some person, but in, a, but in an objective sense, that's the appropriate mode, right? which is why St. Paul, writing on this question in his first letter to the Corinthians, says it is better not to marry. Don't insist on it. But particularly if you're at the service of the church, he says, it's better not to marry, which is why in the Catholic Church's law, there is a strong preference for a celibate clergy. Um, of course, that has been there from the very beginning, mm-hmm. from the time of Christ. Um, but in terms of making it a legal requirement for ordination, um, you know, that's a development that came over centuries. Uh, but there's all, there was always that ideological preference from the beginning for the celibate priesthood. 
Okay. Christine, thanks so much uh, for your call today. It's called to communion here on EWTN. Reminded me uh, what you were just saying there about the only book of the Bible dedicated to baristas. Hebrews. Right. All right, here we go. Uh, Brian is a first-time caller from Spartan, sir, Spartanburg, South Carolina, listening today on YouTube. Hey there, uh, Brian. A very blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you, and uh, hi, Dr. Anders. Hi. Um, so um, I was raised Baptist, and I became a Reformed Baptist later on, and uh, about 10 years ago I started thinking really more deeply about uh, their, you know, the, you know, the um, basic principles you know, one of the things I noticed was that, like a lot of modern Reformed Baptists, like Wayne Grudem and John Piper, they talk about the guilt of Adam's sin being imputed to us. Oh, yeah. And, and I think that that's just fundamentally, in the light of natural reason, against justice. And that really bothered me, but I thought Catholics were in the same boat, too, because I was raised in Catholic church. You know, they're, they're, they're confused, too. So, um, but my, so like, I have a threefold question. The first one was, like, did the Reformers actually, like Luther and Calvin, did they also believe that Adam's sin, the, the guilt of that was imputed to us? And I know that they also believe in total depravity, so I know that, you know, by nature, our, you know, we're, we're everything we do is not pleasing to God. So I'm thinking, like, okay, so by their standards, like, we're already corrupt, so why do we need like, like, why does Adam's guilt need to be imputed to us and justice be external to us? So, you know, I'm just I can trying to you. sort this all out. Yeah. Yeah. So, first of all, I share your revulsion at the Calvinist doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin. Furthermore, I'm going to take it farther than you took it, I also find revolting the idea that our sin would be imputed to Christ. So the whole concept of imputation... I think is horrific and erroneous and unbiblical um, because it involves this barbarity that God is said to punish the innocent in order to acquit the guilty, which would make God intrinsically unjust and horrifically so. Luther understood that. He understood the paradox of claiming that, that um, you know, that what God does is just by the mere fact that he does it, and irrespective of what our intuitions might be on this subject. And understanding that this doctrine, this Protestant doctrine, strikes us as absurd, Luther's response was to say, well, so much for human reason. Reason is a whore, the worst enemy of truth, so, you know, you and your reason be damned. Wow. Was basically his. He was an irrationalist on mm, this issue. Yeah. But I, like you, I, I share that revulsion. Uh, the Catholic Church does not teach the doctrine of imputation, either of Adam's sin or of Christ's righteousness. That is not the way we conceive of original sin. Um, now, you're right about total depravity. Luther, imputation isn't the normal way that he would have put original sin. He did talk in a few places about Christ's righteousness being imputed. But what Luther did was to say that concupiscence, which was the result of the fall of Adam, that concupiscence itself was imputable as sin. And so the, the soul who suffers from concupiscence, which is an immoderate attachment to bodily pleasure, is hateful in God's eyes because of that, something over which he has no personal control. All right. All right. The Catholic position is not that at all. 
All right. So with respect to imputation, the Catholic Church teaches that original sin is sin only by analogy, that it is not actual sin, and it is not imputable to us as guilt. And so no one is punished with the fires of hell for having been born in original sin as such. And that's, that's why medieval theologians speculated about the possible existence of something like limbo, mm. uh, because they understood that, you know, we can't have God condemning to hell someone for something in which they had no agency. Yeah. All right? um, nor do we believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We think instead that the way grace works is that grace actually reforms the soul and moves you from a state of sin to a state of righteousness, whereby you actually love God and love neighbor, and God can say to you in truth, well done, good and faithful servant. And I would contend that that position is the biblical one. All right. And uh, Brian, thank you so much uh, for your call today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Charles in uh, Saginaw, Texas. Is that right? No. Uh, yeah, that is right. Charles is in Saginaw, Texas, and uh, listening to us on Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Charles. What's on your mind today, sir? How are you? I'm uh, very glad to uh, be able to get connected. Uh, the reason for my call was to uh, comment about the um, David's uh, comment about the uh, many Protestants uh, despising the Pope or or whatever, and I uh, just wanted to assure that. There's an awful lot of us that are called Protestants that uh, have nothing but admiration and love for the Pope, and I'm sure that we, were, you know, we're, we're, I don't think we're in the minority. I think it's a lot of Protestants uh, do do um, do that. Uh, but the other the other thing I wanted to say is is that for me personally, that term Protestant is a little bit um, uh, outdated. I think. I, yes, I do belong to. To a Southern Baptist church, but uh, what on earth do you do with a Protestant that uh, supports Catholic radio? What on earth do you do with a Protestant that is a member of the Word on Fire Institute? You know, what what do you do with somebody who would answer the question that you asked at the beginning of your show, why am I not a Catholic, and who would have the answer by saying, only because the Holy Spirit has not led me to yet. Yeah. Um, so I just, yeah. Wanted, I just wanted you to say, another thing, too, I wanted to say, David, is that, that that when you address groups like Protestants or anybody else, one thing that sometimes is on the edge of, of um, on the edge, I think, is, is that sometimes your love for them does not come through. And I'm just... Uh, you know, as a person who has children your age, let me fatherly tell you that make sure that when you address groups that are different, that your love for them comes through with your comments. That's just um, that's just the best advice I can well, give anybody. Well, I, I profoundly appreciate the call. I profoundly appreciate the call and all of the things that you've added. So, first of all, I, I fully recognize that many Protestants have no problem with the Pope. Um, and uh, and I'm deeply gratified and grateful um, for those of them that would be supporters of EW10 and Word on Fire. And somewhat cynically, when you said, what do you do with them? I thought, well, let's send them a donation envelope for starters. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but, Good one. No, but, but quite seriously, 
I uh, I embrace them, obviously. Sure. Now, when when you mentioned that sometimes my love does not come across, well, I'm, I'm pained to hear that, and I'm very sorry. Uh, I, I think I know what you're talking about. I, I, I will say this. I, I have said a thousand times on this radio show that I am profoundly grateful for the Protestants who raised me and the moral example that they set for me, and I have said a, a thousand times that my Southern Baptist grandfather had more grace and virtue in his pinky finger than I have in, in my whole sacramentalized Catholic body. And and uh, and I, I stand by that statement, and I, I fully recognize that. So I will admit to sometimes expressing some animus when I, when I pontificate, pardon the pun, on Protestantism, um, but it is from the perspective of having been raised Protestant and having suffered personally, um, you know, at the hands of some specific doctrines that I regard as is unbiblical mm-hmm. and uh, and as damaging, right? But and and occasionally at the hands of some individuals who who wielded power over me, justified by those doctrines. And so I, you know, I certainly don't mean to paint every Protestant or every Protestant tradition with that same brush. And generally, when I talk about Protestantism, I'm, I think I'm, I'm quick to specify, I am now talking about the confessional statements that were produced in the 16th century by Luther, by Calvin, and by their collaborators. And I recognize that that doesn't describe everyone, but it, it captures a sort of a broad center of the historic Protestant intellectual tradition. And that's what I'm engaged with, fully recognizing that there are many individuals uh, who have lived exemplary lives and are wonderful people and who have blessed me personally. So I, I want to say that, and, and I, don't, I don't offer that qualification every time I open my mouth on, say, the Augsburg Confession. <laughs> right? But the Augsburg Confession is not a human being. Right. right? It's a paper document yeah. that I have a problem with. And I have a problem with the Westminster Confession. That doesn't mean I have a problem with everyone who holds those paper documents. Right? Um, I, I, I confess the teaching of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I will tell you that I have a big problem with a lot of people who hold it, mm. right? I mean, Catholics are sinners, and and it, it, the answer to the question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Uh, uh, frequently, the most common answer and the most honest answer is Catholics. Yeah. Catholics are what's stopping me from becoming a Catholic. How sad. And I recognize that. Yeah. Well, Charles, we really appreciate your phone call. Thank you so much for checking in from Saginaw, Texas. It's called a communion here on EWTN. You know what? A great way to start your weekday mornings. It's the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. We're proud to bring that to you every Monday through Friday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go down to Steve in Melbourne, Florida, who has a question about something that David was saying a little bit earlier. Uh, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Uh I heard you earlier mention that uh, the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, have a uh, situation where if they commit a sin after baptism, then they're uh, condemned. Nope. Uh, Didn't say that. Nope. Don't believe that. Didn't say that. Misunderstanding. Um, Clearly, the Orthodox don't hold the position that you just held, that you just stated. Here's what I said. In the second century... Not modern orthodoxy. Yeah. In the second century, there was a doctrine that you could find in the East and the West. It was not limited to one side of the empire. There was a doctrine in circulation East and West that held that you were allowed only one act of repentance after baptism. 
If you look this up, you will find it described as the controversy over the second repentance. It was a commonly held view in the East and the West, but it was wrong. And it was Pope Calixtus who, who repudiated the doctrine, and he earned the ire, of, among others, of Tertullian, as well as uh, eventually Novation, um, uh, and, uh, who took the opposite point of view. And Tertullian, of course, was a Latin. He was a Westerner, not a Greek. Uh-huh. Um, and so the Pope's position, which became the Orthodox position East and West, uh, is that you can repent and be forgiven, you know, an indefinite number of times after baptism. So I, I certainly didn't impute that position to modern Orthodoxy. No, 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 no. I said it was a heresy in the second century that the Pope condemned and that modern Orthodoxy also condemns. Steve, thanks so much for your call today. Nancy Joe is watching us on Facebook this afternoon. She says, hi, guys. I'm your number one fan here listening on Modern Day Radio uh, from a gorgeous pre-spring Lent day from Portland, Oregon. My question, in the couple of last shows that you've done, you've talked about Stoicism. What exactly is that? How does it relate to the Catholic Church or being a Christian in general? And I can hear my Protestant friends thinking, where is that in the Bible? Love you guys. Nancy Joe on Facebook. Yeah, thanks. So Stoicism is a school of Hellenistic philosophy that emerged, you know, a generation or two after, uh, after the death of Plato and Socrates. And the, uh, uh, some of the principles of Stoicism, Stoicism really was meant to address um, psychological questions about what is and moral questions about what is the best disposition that a person can take towards reality, uh, towards the physical universe, towards suffering, and and a key to the doctrine of Stoicism was the idea that the universe is governed by a, a by a, a a benevolent providence, you know, such that what happens in nature is good by definition, and that. Um, and is also more or less inevitable. You're not going to be able to stop the, the flow of history or the, or the you know the, the the mechanics of physics. And so the the best attitude to take towards reality is one of acquiescence. That um, you know if you've ever heard the Serenity Prayer attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Though that's a Christian prayer, it it reflects very much the Stoic mindset. And uh, um, what we know about early Stoicism is is scattered. We don't have a lot of documents from the early Stoics, um, but in um, in uh, uh, late Stoicism, the early centuries of uh, of uh, of the Common Era, people like Seneca, uh, the Roman philosopher Seneca, mm-hmm. the statesman Epictetus, and then the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. Um, as well as Musonius Rufus would be celebrated Stoics whose whose writings are widely available. Um, now, Stoicism had a big influence on early Christianity. Uh, so, for example, the the tradition of the seven deadly sins is um, is an entailment, a development of uh, of, uh, of of Stoic psychology, and it passed through the mind of one Evagrius Ponticus, who was a Christian theologian, a monk of Egypt in the fourth century. Um, a lot of monastic practice, some of the monastic virtues, uh, the virtue of apatheia or dispassion is one that um, has finds its provenance in Stoicism, but, but you know, came to characterize the, the way Christians thought about the, the monastic path and sort of the, the, the trajectory of spiritual development from asceticism to final union with God. Have We see Stoic influences there. The doctrine of natural law, which is, of course, the way Catholics conceive of 
the moral order uh, has Stoic roots. So Stoicism had a profound influence on the development of Catholic theology. To the question, where is Stoicism in the Bible? St. Paul quotes uh, Cleanthes' hymn to Zeus in Acts chapter 17. Uh. So when he says, some of your own poets have said, we are God's offspring, uh, he's actually quoting a Stoic poet. And uh, uh, there, for longer discussion, there, there are other marks of Stoicism's influence upon St. Paul. And the, the attitude that I mentioned earlier of dispassion or apatheia um, definitely characterizes Jesus' attitude towards physical suffering and deprivation. And so someone like Clement of Alexandria, second century father of the church, saw in Jesus a kind of perfect embodiment of Stoic virtues and credited him with perfect apatheia or perfect dispassion. So uh, you do find Stoicism in the New Testament directly and indirectly, and you find an awful lot of commonality between Stoic lines of thinking and, and Christian theology and practice. Now, when you make those kind of claims, there is a school of, of Christian thought, some evangelical Protestants, for example, who, who act like if t- to be authentic revelation, you, you can't find commonality between Christianity and other traditions. That if, you know, if it's somehow derived or derivable from, from natural reason, then that, that somehow is a, is a mark against it. And I understand that position. I think that's deeply irrational. The Catholic position is that if, if the Christian faith comes to give us a revelation about our own nature and our relationship to God, um, it, it sure as heck ought to be amenable to human reason. It ought to actually describe reality as we find it, right? And so since Christians believe that humanity comes from a common source, we all share a common human nature, it stands to reason that people applying their, their reason to the problems of human existence would come up with similar diagnoses, right? That we would co- t- tend to conceive of the human problem, the moral dilemma, in similar terms, even if Christianity offers a unique solution to that problem. So it does, shouldn't surprise when you find commonalities between Christian thought and pagan thought. Nancy Joe, thanks so much for checking in on Facebook this afternoon. Let's go to Larry in Kenosha, Wisconsin, listening on the great WSFI. Hey there, Larry. A blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Yes. In Philippians, the second chapter where it says, Every, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Uh, is that to be taken literally, or will the Buddhists, the um, Muslims, the atheists, uh, whoever else will also bow and confess? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question, Larry. So I think, I think personally that Paul is talking about an eschatological reality here, something that he anticipates coming at the end of time. Uh-huh. And remember that, that the Christian doctrine is at the end of time when Christ returns, there'll be a general resurrection and a general judgment of all the living and all the dead. And so, you know, it's one thing to confess Jesus by faith. Now it's another thing when he's, you know, standing right in front of you, you know, in, in, uh, in you know, glowing in, in uh, brilliant glory. Um, yeah. then it's a very different thing to say, I'm not going to bow the knee. Brent Larry, thanks so much for your call. We have time, time enough here for Renee, a first-time caller in Omaha, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Renee, we've got about a minute. What's on your mind today? Oh, um, I have a quick question. I was, um, my daughter, who's 20 and in college, brought up with me yesterday, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 3 through about 16, where it talks about um, men should have their head uncovered and women should be covered, and then it's shameful for a woman to have her head unveiled. Um, and I just wonder if I could get a little bit of 
help in going over that with her? Yeah, sure. So the first thing to note is that if you walk into any Catholic church today, you will find that uh, women are not required to cover their heads. And, uh, and we certainly know about 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 11. The Catholic Church put it in the Bible. So, so it's, it's not like we're, you, we don't know what the Bible teaches, and we obviously don't take that as a literal injunction that has to be obeyed in every case. And so the real question is, how, what's the proper way to interpret sacred scripture? And there is a point of view that is not Catholic, that holds that God gave us the Bible to give us a, a kind of infallible, inerrant, utterly sufficient system of rules and doctrines, you know, that the, the, the sort of systematic application of which just is the sum total of Christian theology. That'd be the way a fundamentalist would read the text. That's just not the way Catholics read the text. The Bible is, uh, is inspired, and it's inerrant, but its purpose is not to give us a comprehensive rule of life. It's, it's useful for teaching and training and rebuke and righteousness, as Paul says, and it's, it's uh, fodder for theological speculation and for prayer. Um, but, the, but the task of governing the, peop- the life of the people of God is given to the church, to the magisterium, and our interpretation of the Bible is governed by uh, essentially hermeneutical principles where the person and character of Christ is the sort of the, you know, the ultimate key to interpreting, implying the rest of it, which means that we understand kind of nuanced, layered way of reading Scripture, and there are things in the Bible that were clearly sort of cultural condescensions uh-huh. to, you know, particular historical circumstances. Jesus says that explicitly, right, in Matthew chapter, nine, to chapter 19, when he talks about the uh, Mosaic law on divorce. He says this was not God's will from the beginning. This is a kind of concession to human weakness. And there's no reason we can't apply that same kind of principle to these issues as well. Now, when it comes to the status of women within the church, I would direct your daughter to the apostolic letter by Pope John Paul II called On the Dignity of Women. Let her go read that and then come back and complain to you. (laughs) Absolutely. Renee, thanks so much for your call. We got a couple of questions on YouTube from Mike and Kenny. We're going to hold those over until tomorrow's program. Dr. David Anders, thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday live at 2 p.m. Eastern right here for you on EWTN Radio. Check out the podcast 24-7. Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours at EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you tomorrow on the Friday edition of Call to Communion. Have yourselves a blessed day. We will see you then. God bless.